Ladies and gentlemen and non-binary friends, welcome to the incredible Playable Podcast. My name is Alistair Aitchison, I shall be your incredible Playable host today, and we shall begin the show with a game! I would like you all to begin by just relax yourselves a minute, maybe close your eyes, maybe if you're driving a car, don't close your eyes. You know, do if you're feeling risky, like, I'm not going to judge you. Actually, I probably will judge you if you are driving a car and decide to close your eyes at this point to enjoy the podcast better. I want you to imagine that your body parts are food. I want you to imagine that your feet are food. What food are your feet today? Maybe there are some kind of fruit or some kind of vegetable. Maybe they're confectionaries, you know, sweets or pastry or or maybe they're meat. Maybe you have meat feet today. Maybe your feet are in a can or in a box. Maybe, uh, honestly, I can't think of other types of food. (laughs) So just like settle on that idea. Try and just picture in your mind's eye the food that your feet are right now. And now remembering what your feet are, I want you to think about your knees. And what are your what food are your knees today? Think about the knees, you know? Maybe it's uh maybe it's dairy. You know, maybe it maybe it's actually a drink, you know? Could be in in a can or a bottle, you know? Or maybe it's it's grains or porridge or something, you know? Like could be particular. It could be just one solid block of a thing. So just settle on your mind's eye. Just whatever comes to your mind. What are your knees right now? So you've got your feet. You've got your knees. And now let's think about... Let's think about your chest. What is your chest right now? You know? What is your chest made of? Is it made of... You know, what packaging is it in? Is it in cardboard packaging? Is it in, you know, plastic wrap packaging? Does it have a label on it? Or is it just kind of, you know, as it comes straight from the greengrocer? We've got your, your feet, your knees, your chest, your hands. What are your hands made of today? What food item? You know, imagine the taste, imagine the smell. What are your hands today? Picture your feet as food, your knees as food, your chest as food, and your hands as food. And finally, your head as food. The pièce de résistance. What what is the crowning glory of this cornucopia that you have become? What, What food item is your head? What is the... The head of this experience. What is it? And once you've done that, once you, I want you to picture all five of these things and picture yourself putting them into your cupboard. You've just come back from the shops. These are all the ingredients that you have in the house. And you've just remembered. You've got your friends coming over for a dinner party in half an hour. And my challenge to you, my lovely audience, is to make a meal with those ingredients that you have harvested from your body 
What are they? What will you create with your mysterious bodily food items? Ladies and gentlemen and non-binary friends, this is the Incredible Playable Podcast. Thank you for tuning in, thank you for listening, and that's actually the beginning of the podcast, because I've got a lot more things I want to talk about today. This is not just this one game. Obviously, you can probably tell the runtime of the podcast now that you've tuned in. What am I going to be talking about today? I'm going to be talking about a book. The Incredible Playable podcast is not just a podcast with these lovely, playful interludes in it. It is a podcast where I'm going to talk about my relationship to play and games and creativity. And I'm going to be talking about it through the lens of my experiences creating interactive stage shows. Uh, So if uh, if you know me, you might already know this. If you don't... Um, I perform an interactive stage show called The Incredible Playable Show, Um, hence the name of this podcast. And in The Incredible Playable Show, I invite the audience up onto the stage to join me, and I ask them to take part in these kind of interactive games on the stage with me. So they're video games that I've created that use weird and wonderful props, like barcode scanners and inflatables and there's these kind of vests which you wear with barcodes on them, Um, and there's a bit where um, I get people up onto the stage to tie, like, tablets, like uh, Android tablets, to their bellies, and they pretend to be Power Rangers. So it's all full of these silly things. And the idea of the Incredible Playable Show is it's about creating a space where everybody can feel feel like they're part of the experience, and everybody can feel that, They get to join in. They get to be funny. They get to be a part of the excitement. So this show is going to be talking about, you know, my creative philosophy and what goes into creating a show like The Incredible Playable Show. Um, And to do that, I'm going to be talking about different things that I've made and different things that I've read and kind of creative experiences that I've had. Now, one of these things that is very important to me is clowning. So I discovered clowning uh, a couple of years ago, um, and I would not call myself a seasoned clown. You know, I've not done a lot of clowning. Um, But I have done some weekend-long and week-long workshops uh, with a clown teacher here in Bristol called Holly Stop It, and those have been hugely inspiring and informative for me, and I've learned a lot about myself, as well as learning a lot about about my craft and how to connect with audiences and how to entertain. And, and it's been really rich and valuable. Now, I kind of... First climb course I went on was... I think it was three years ago now. I think it was the beginning of 2018. And after the course, uh, Holly sent us all uh, a list of books that we could read um, to learn more about clowning. And there's one of them that really stuck with me. And that's what I'm going to be using as the basis of of the conversation today. It's a book called Clowns, uh, nice and simple, uh, with the subtitle In Conversation with Modern Masters. Um, It's written by Ezra LeBanc and David Bridal. And it's a set of interviews. It's a collection of interviews with clowns from the 
around the world at the top of their craft. These are some of the you know most renowned clowns in the business, and they are talking about their techniques. They're talking about their their background and origins, and they're also talking about their philosophy of you know what is clown, what makes a great clown, you know what what is their dream for what they want clowning to be. Um, and this book kind of really connected with me. So that's going to be the basis of our kind of discussion. You know, this is what I'm going to be digging into today. I've decided to uh, split this exploration of this book into three segments, basically on the kind of basis of the the things within the book that really stood out to me. Um, the themes that you know really resonated with me, that I could feel, oh, that reflects my own craft, you know, that reflects my own, my own direction, my own vision. I'm going to be talking about these clowns and their relationship to humility and what humility is to them as a kind of creative tool. I'm going to be talking in the next podcast about failure. And then I'm going to be talking about what their dreams are of what they want clown to be and what clown is to them and talk about how that relates to my own kind of visions of what I want video games to be and and the other creative things that I want to create. So just to kind of give you a little background on who I am, as well as the incredible playable show, um, I've been making video games professionally for about 10 years now. Other games that I've done, which I'll be bringing up today, uh, one of them is called Codex Bash, which is a kind of team-based, problem-solving, kind of code-breaking game which uses these four coloured buttons and various props and bits of paper and kind of like escape room in a rucksack kind of thing that you can spread out with these buttons that get spread around the room. And they're these very simple puzzles which ask the player to press the buttons in the right order in order to get to the next bit of the sequence. And the other game I'm going to talk about from my uh, from my portfolio is a game called The Book Ritual. And The Book Ritual is played using a modified paper shredder. The shredder eats books. And the player is asked to write inside of a book, like, you know, just any book off of their bookshelf or one of the ones that I bring to an event. And they are asked to write about their memories and uh, write about things they might have lost, um, sad experiences they might have had. And they are also, well, not so much invited. They have to, in order to progress through the story, tear pages out of this book and put them through the shredder. Um, and that's where the kind of, the sensors inside the shredder tell the computer that it's shredding something so it can advance the story. So let's crack on with talking about, about humility. And I'm going to just crack open, start with, uh, this is the section, uh, an interview with a clown, an American clown born in 1948 called Avner Eisenberg. Now, he's talking about his clown students and how they have this kind of fear of how the audience is going to react to them. You know, the, 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 that the students fear that their performance might not be very good. You know, it might not be very funny. 
But at the same time, he asks them, what do you, when you go to see a show, what are you afraid of? And they say the same thing. They say they are afraid that the show isn't going to be very good. And so he points out that what you've got there, and this is happening in every show, is you've got this mutual, mutual tension where the performer is afraid of the audience and the audience is afraid of the performer and they are both afraid that the show isn't going to be very good. And this is really, this to me speaks to humility because what he's talking about is he's talking about understanding you know, part of it is understanding your own kind of, your own fears, your own anxieties as a performer. But it's also about understanding your audience's point of view. You know, this acknowledgement that the audience is scared of you. And this isn't like, he's not talking about people being scared of clowns, you know. The same would be true in theatre, the same would be true, you know, of dance. And this this thing of understanding not just you know your own yourself as a flawed individual as a performer but also your audience or the people playing your game you know understanding where they're coming from to me that's a big piece of humility as a kind of as a creative tool as a as a force that you have to consider in something that you're creating and he has this to say about it he says when a performer walks on stage and sees the audience, ah, I think that's a bit, I think that's meant to be a gasp. Written down, it's written down as ah. He says it makes the audience do the same thing. Ah, tension. So the very first thing that must happen is this. Inhale. Exhale. Inhale. Exhale. The message that you've sent to the audience at a subconscious level is I'm comfortable with you watching me instead of the usual I hope you like this. Now when I'm doing the Incredible Playable show you know I'm inviting people from the audience to come onto the stage and take a weird prop or, a prop or electronic device off of me and use it to play these video games that they've never seen before in their lives. You know? And I want them to be playful. You know, none of these games are super serious. You know, none of these games are, you know, uh, think of some serious toned games, Call of Duty or something. You know, it's fairly, uh, um, oh, I'm getting into the weeds of really what is a serious game, you know? Um, but they're meant to be playful. You know, these games are an inv invitation to play around and make a mess and, you know, and be silly, you know? But they are not going to play around and be silly if they're scared of being humiliated. And that's the thing is most people, when they come up onto the stage, that's going to be the thing that they are worried about is, am I going to be embarrassed? And because of that, most people aren't going to want to come onto the stage in the first place. You know, I spend a lot of time and energy on the opening of the show trying to create a sense of warmth in the room so that one person, I just need one person to feel like they're confident enough to give it a shot. Now, in the very first shows that I did, they absolutely nosedived. They were terrible shows, okay? Because 
none of the audience in the room felt comfortable participating. Now, what I did in those shows, the very first ones I did, I started the show with the most expressive, the silliest, the one, the, the game where people would have to do the most running around and acting out of the ordinary. And I did that right at the beginning of the show. And I did that without any real warm-up either. There wasn't really much warm-up for the audience. And there was a technical reason for that, which is that at that point, the technology that caused that, that made that game work was really flaky. So if I, I knew if I, if I started it at the, the software at the beginning of the show and it was about five minutes between the show starting and the game starting, then the technology wouldn't have broken. But if I left it any longer, there was a growing risk that the technology would just break and then I'd have this kind of like gap in the show where I'm desperately trying to repair it. Um, but the upshot of that is that I'm inviting people onto the stage to play the silliest game in the, um, uh, in the performance and they're not running around the room. They're just standing there, you know, and it's telling them things like play tag with each other and they're kind of prodding each other on the shoulder rather than running around the room, which is what I wanted them to do. And the reason they were doing that is because I hadn't created a space where they weren't going to fear embarrassing themselves. So there's various things that I do to basically stop the audience having that sensation that I am going to be embarrassed if I take part in this show. Things that I do involve like running around the auditorium at ground level, you know, I do a big entrance on the stage and very quickly I go from doing the intro to the show on the stage to doing it among the audience in their seats because I want them to see that I'm the same size as they are, you know, I am one of them. Um, I am not threatening, you know, as, as the host, I am, I am a friend, you know, they can see me eye to eye, you know, it says I'm human just like you. And then I, you know, before we even start playing the games, I'd start asking the audience for input and suggestions. You know, I asked them for, you know, what's the team name for, for all of us in the room tonight and things like that. And, and every idea they give me, I treat it like it's a great idea. Because I want people to feel good for having the courage to pitch an idea, you know? And I'm getting people to shout and cheer. Because shouting and cheering is something that you can do to kind of, to express a bit of energy without needing to feel that you're putting yourself on the spot because everybody else is doing it too. So you can kind of have a practice version of coming onto the stage in the kind of in the safety of your seat. Now, honestly, when I look at where I am as a performer and how I'm doing, I don't think I am of the level of uh, of uh, Abner Eisenberg or even the the student clowns that he's teaching because I know that I'm not really focusing on my breathing when I come onto the stage. And I know that there's plenty of shows where I feel like I come onto the stage trying to win over the audience's interest, you know, trying to prove to them that, yes, yes, this is a funny show. And that's something that, that I want to work on and I want to improve on. But I think my point here is that that understanding is that that, 
the audience is coming into the room with an element of fear inside of them is a really valuable thing to know and a really important thing to account for. Now, I think this applies to games as well as stage shows. Um, so an example I would give would be The Book Ritual, um, which is the game with the shredder that eats the books. The players are going to come up to the shredder with a sort of a sense that there is something wrong about damaging a book, you know, or they don't want to open up, you know. I'm asking them to share share their secrets in the pages, and even though they know it can't read what they're writing down, there's still a certain, oh, do I really want to do this? Do I really want to go there? Do I really want to explore this? And my job as a designer is to make them feel like it's safe. You know, my job is to make them feel like it's safe to tear up a book and that it's safe to open up about your feelings. An example of something that does this is when I'm at an exhibition and I bring the shredder with me you know, to show the game at the exhibition and I always keep the shreds that people have generated for the duration of the exhibition. And I put them next to the shredder and at the end of the day, I always pack them away safely, lock them up if I can, so that they don't get tidied away by the cleaners. And then I put them back the next day. And the reason I'm doing this is because it creates a space where the player doesn't need to feel self-conscious about tearing up a book. Because they have plenty of evidence that lots of other people have already done this. You know, they are not creating new mess they are just adding to the mess that's already there and so there's this element of kind of safety about it so later on in the interview um avner eisenberg uh cites uh one of his influences a man called keith johnstone now i'll admit i don't actually know <laughs> i don't know any of these clowns you know, I've not really seen much of their work before, so I don't actually know who Keith Johnston is. Um, but I really like what he has to say, and it's the following. Clever's the last thing you want to be. It's a subtle way of telling everyone else that you're smarter than they are. Now, in the games that I designed for the Incredible Playable show, it was important for me to make all of these games really simple so that everybody in the room can follow along with them. You know, it, I'm not there to try and catch players out. I'm making games because I want people to run around the room being silly, you know, and climbing over theatre seats and stuff like that. You know, I'm not doing it because I want to prove how smart I am by how cool a complicated puzzle I can make. That's a satisfaction that I get to enjoy, but the audience doesn't. And... And that's no fun for the audience. If the audience is just staring at some fiendish puzzle and me going, oh, I feel so smart for coming up with a fiendish puzzle. That's not fun. That's just the momentum of the show kind of kind of hitting a brick wall and running, running dry. And ugh, that's no fun, you know? So the puzzles, there are puzzles in the show. None of them are complex. What they are is, when they are difficult, is they are unwieldy. Um, one of the games involves running around a room with a barcode scanner, and you have to scan barcodes on the audience's chests. I hand out these vests with barcodes on them. 
So you have to run around the room, find the audience member with the barcode you want to scan, and scan it. And when you do, a playing card appears on the screen. And you're effectively playing the matching pairs game, you know, where you turn over a 9 and then you turn over another card, and if it's a 9, you take the cards. If it's not a 9, you turn them back over again, and you have to remember what cards were where. And instead of using playing cards, I'm using, like, these pictures of playing cards, and I'm using the audience with barcodes on their bodies. This game has levels to it, and it gets progressively difficult, but the way it gets difficult is not that you have to think more, but you have to be more observant. So the pictures that get revealed when you turn them over start to look more and more similar. Like, it starts out, the early ones are, oh, that's a picture of a mushroom, that's a picture of a star, that's a picture of a parrot. And then the later ones is, they're all ordnance survey maps. And you can see that the ordnance survey maps are of different parts of the map, but what you can't see is, like, it's harder to pick out distinguishing features that go make you go, oh, that's, that one matches that other one. So it's harder to remember them all because you're like, you know, you've just got kind of vague shapes to work from. Another, you know, and then the final one is it's a crowd of people and differing groups of the people, like differing figures in the crowd have my face instead of their face. And so remembering where my face was in the crowd is something that's really hard to describe. So it's like there's this kind of visual complexity and the difficulty is going up, but you don't have to kind of, you don't have to think more. You, you have to observe more. And that's nice because what it does is it allows everybody in the room to participate. You know, you don't need to be good at, at uh, cryptic crosswords or whatever to get it. You don't need to have played a lot of other video games to get it. And this is really important, not just because it kind of opens the games up to everybody being able to participate in them, but it also means that people at the back of the room can play along with the experience as well. So if you're at the back of the room, like, you can see, oh wait, I remember when that ordnance survey map came up. I can remember the one with the church in it came up. And it was over there, so you can shout out, it's over there, it's over there. Or if you don't feel like shouting out, at least you can play along in your head. And you can picture what you would do in the same situation. And you can experience the joy of solving this, this challenge, even though you're not actually doing anything. You know, and that's, that's something special, because it means that even if you're a bit shy, you can take something out of this experience. You can be a part of it. So in the earliest versions of the show, where it, you know, while I was still, it still hadn't quite found its feet, it still wasn't quite working quite right, I used to kind of, each game had a kind of cold opening to it. And this is something, this is the way the games worked as installations. So Codex Bash, the one about the code breaking and running around hitting the buttons, I use that in my show, but originally that was designed to be set up in museums, and I would show it off at games exhibitions and things like that. Now, that would start, you know, the first round would be super simple, and most players would start by pressing a button by accident, 
and realising the game had started, and then kind of going along with it. And I used to love that because you had this little eureka moment going on where they go, oh wait, this is a game. You know, and that eureka moment is really special. And I, I love these eureka moments that kind of belong entirely to the player. You know, that that's like that moment where you went, oh my god, this is a game. That belongs to you. But on the stage, I was using the same kind of similar approach to making these games or even just recycling games that I'd made for exhibitions. And they all had this cold opening where you, they were supposed to start with the eureka moment of what it does. But the problem is that that eureka moment would only read to the person who who figured out that that thing. So, you know, the person at the back of the room watching someone else go, oh wait, this is a game, they're not going to understand the mental steps that the person on stage went through to figure out that this was a game. So what I do now is I begin every game with a kind of tutorial segment where I kind of get the player who's come up onto the stage to take the prop for the first time. I step them through the motions of, say, if it's the barcode scanner, scanning people's chests, scanning a chest, finding another one, they don't match, scan the next one, or you've got a matching pair, go and back and scan the first one, you've got yourself a point. A kind of tutorial thing where I'm stepping them through all the motions of the game. And what that's really there to do is not actually teach that person on the stage how the game works. The person on stage could have figured out how the game works just by playing around with it. What that is there to do is to make sure that the people at the back of the room can see how the game works and the people, you know, and they can see how the barcode scanner works and they can see what the player with the barcode scanner is doing to make the cards appear. So that at the point in the game where it goes, I need a new person to take the barcode scanner, the people at the back of the room feel just as empowered to stand up and say, I'll do it, as the people at the front of the room. So I think that's an important part of, you know, of being humble as a, you know, as a show creator, as a game creator, you know, of understanding that a great game is not an exhibition of how clever the game designer was. A great game is something that conjures a great experience from the people playing it. There's another quote uh, by Eisenberg here that I feel is on quite a similar note. Um, it's very close to the designer being clever. Maybe it is actually something that would be a consequence of a designer focusing on being clever. He says, I can't watch performers humiliating people, making them do hoochie-coochie dances in front of the public. It drives me nuts or juggling clubs in front of them, where there's this implication, this threat that they might get hurt. I can't stand that. I've developed a whole philosophy and lots of techniques for what, I hope, creates a situation where the rest of the audience says, wow, that looked like fun. Maybe I can be next. And one of the things I like about this comment, it's almost like he's saying that like this is a kind of revelation of one of the the sort of top clowns 
in the business. Um, and I don't want to sound too arrogant, but this is a lesson that I had to learn on day one during the Incredible Playable show. <laughs> because the show doesn't even work. It does not work, like, for a minute if you're getting players on stage to humiliate them. Because I need people to run around the room with all of these props and inflatables and barcode scanners and tablets on their bellies and stuff, and they're not going to do that if they're worried they're going to be embarrassed. And if one of the first things you do is get them on stage and embarrass them, then they're not going to trust you. And they're not going to want to come up and do that and to create the experience where the whole room is in on the fun. Like, you need to have people pitching in. So you need to make them know, make sure they know that they are not going to be humiliated. Now, I never intended to um, humiliate my audience, but it's very easy to do that unintentionally. And it's like I talked about with the very first show that I ever did, where I got people up on stage and they just didn't interact with the game. Because I'd created a situation where if they had gone along with it, they probably would have embarrassed themselves. One of the things that really kind of helps me get around this is the host. Now, I see the host of the Incredible Playable show as a character in his own right. If you come to the show, you'd probably go, oh, that's Alistair. But in my head, that's not Alistair on stage. That's the Incredible Playable man. And there's a couple of things that make the Incredible Playable Man different from Alistair. The Incredible Playable Man is much more excitable than Alistair. And he's also a bit more arrogant. Or maybe he wears his arrogant on his sleeve. Maybe I'm already arrogant. I don't know. But certainly, I don't know if arrogance is the right word. I think it might maybe more... He's proud of what he's made. He's got this kind of pride about him. He is, he is enjoying being the star of the show. That's very important. He's enjoying being the star of the show, and he's very energetic. He's kind of hyperactive, excitable, which are traits that I have. And, you know, if you've seen me get enthusiastic about something I enjoy, you know, I, you've probably seen me getting very, very loud. The Incredible Playable Man is an amped-up version of all of that. And what's useful about having that kind of character on stage, you know, this character that likes drawing attention to yourself, is that if you volunteer to come up onto stage and take part in one of the games, you don't have to worry so much about putting yourself on the spot. Because the incredible playable man's on the spot. You know, the incredible playable man has the spotlight. You know, and he likes the spotlight, so he's not just going to give up the spotlight unless you try to take the spotlight off him, in which case he will let you have the spotlight because you want the spotlight, you know? And I want you to have an awesome time at the show. So if you want to, if you want the spotlight, have it. But the only way that I, as a performer, will let you put yourself in a position where you might embarrass yourself is if you consent to it. You know, if you have to make an effort to be louder or more excitable, or more noticeable than the incredible playable man, you know, if you have to make that effort, then you are, you are acting out your intention to take the spotlight, you know? And if you don't want to take the spotlight, 
then all you have to do is just be yourself, just be normal, you know, just don't make an effort. So another thing about having this, you know, maybe arrogance, not the right word, I can't think of a better one, but this, you know, host who loves being in the spotlight is when things go wrong, he makes a great fall guy, you know, and like, he can look to the audience totally embarrassed and say, well, that didn't happen in rehearsals. And then if you do something that sort of like something weird, like, so there's inflatable bananas. And I've had various points where people have bashed me on the head with an inflatable banana. Um, I've had one person who stuck the inflatable banana down his shirt and ran around pretending to be a unicorn. If you do that, then the incredible playable man will act like that's the most incredible thing I've ever seen, you know? Why did I never think of that? And you get to enjoy being, like, smarter than this guy in the spotlight, you know? But it's all got this positivity to that. It's all, you know, comes with this positivity, this idea that any idea that the audience comes up with is better than than what I've done. So the audience gets this, anyone who contributes gets this sense that what they have done has made a positive impact on the show. My lovely listeners at the incredible Playable Podcast, it is now time for the Playable Interlude. Yes, we're going to be returning to the little mental space that we created at the start of this show. So let's picture, remember back you had all those food items that you had to make as a dish for your friends who were coming round for a dinner party in half an hour's time. What did you make them? What did you make them? Try and picture that meal laid out on the table. Does it look appetizing? Does it look disgusting? Does it look bland? Just try and picture that all laid out on a seat for you and three friends who... I hear knocking at the door. Yes, three friends have come to your door and they are important figures from history. Wasn't that a surprise? You might have been expecting friends from real life, but they are figures from history. Who have you got? Who is walking through your doors? Just the first three figures you think of are walking through your door right now. And they are sitting down and they see this meal laid out in front of them. Maybe you put up candles for them. I don't know. What room are you in with them? What room are you having this dinner party in? They sit down in front of the, dish, the, the meal. How do they feel about it? How do they feel about it as they sit down? Are they hungry? Are they curious? Are they disgusted? Are they confused? I might be confused at this moment. Maybe I'm one of these people. You know, maybe you're listening to this in the future once. I'm an important figure in history, and I'm one of the people you've invited to your dinner party, and in which case, thank you very much for this uh, very odd-looking meal. Okay, so you've got your, your figures from history, and they're looking down, and, and they dip their cutlery, knives, forks, chopsticks, whatever it is they're eating this with. Maybe they're just eating it with their hands, because it's like sandwiches or something. You know, they're chewing, they're tasting it. And one of them 
really likes it? Which one of them really likes it? Which of your three historical friends really likes this food you've prepared for them? And one of them, oh god, absolutely disgusted. Absolutely, oh god, this is disgusting. They're like turning their nose up. They have not tasted anything so disgusting in their lives. Which of your historical friends is that? Now, while you're looking, watching these two historical figures simultaneously adoring and abhorring your food, that is both delicious to one and disgusting to the other, you've not noticed the third, third historical figure. Who is choking on the food? This person's choking on the food. What do you do? Cliffhanger? Ladies and gentlemen, non-binary friends, welcome back to the Incredible Playable Podcast. That has been a playable interlude. We are leaving it on a cliffhanger as we go back to the discussion of, of the clowns book, of the book Clowns in Conversation with Modern Masters, and me talking through my experiences um, performing and making games and how this connects with the lessons that the clowns teach through their work and the philosophy that they have, talking about humility. And Avner Eisenberg, I do keep on going back to this because I feel like a lot of the stuff this one particular clown talked about related very strongly to this theme. And, you know, when I was going through my post-it notes, all kind of ended up, like, (laughs) colour-coding all my bullet points. I realised a lot of the blue bullet points, which were the humility ones, Um, all seem to centre around this uh, one particular clown. In this section, he is describing a bit by the famous clown Grok, one one of the legends of the craft. He says, Grok sits down at a piano and can't reach the keyboard. Interesting, he thinks. He stands up, walks around the back of the piano and pushes the piano to the bench. Now, if he were to push the bench to the piano, we'd say, well, I could do that. And I really like this idea, because I think, realistically, most people looking at that gag, yeah, I think they'd say, well, I could do that, about pushing the piano to the bench, you know? Like, they get why it's funny. It's not the simplest thing. It's not the sort of the obvious solution. Um, But I think the majority of the audience could have come up with this gag. But they didn't. And they know they didn't. And that's where the magic is. I think there is some actual genuine magic of doing something that was like, yeah, that joke was so obvious, but I couldn't see it. You know, I would never have seen it, but I could have, you know, do you know what I'm getting at? And, like, I think that's a good thing. I think creating something where your audience, your, you know, whether you're, it's a video game and they're players, or if it's a movie and they're viewers, you know, if the audience can go, I could have done that myself, that is actually quite an inspiring thing. If you've played my installation games, if you've played Codex Basher, or you've taken part in the show, or if you've played the book ritual with the shredder you might have 
well, you hopefully notice, because I think it's glaringly obvious, a lot of the props are made out of cardboard and held together with gaffer tape. And personally, I'm not really interested in making professional-looking casings or anything like that. Like, I've seen other creators, you know, create some really beautiful pieces of work, which are these lovely, you know, crafted artefacts. But in terms of me and what I want to make, that just doesn't interest me, you know? I'm, I'm more interested in making the next game, or you know, and making this do better things. I've not got a problem with um, perfectly crafted materials, but it just, it, to me, it's just not a problem I'm excited to solve. But you get this nice side benefit of making everything out of cardboard and gaffer tape, is that people can look at it and go, I can make that myself. You know, another side benefit is that if you're at an exhibition and it breaks, it's really easy to open it up, tear it apart, and stick it back together again, you know? And if you're not precious about it, you can, like, okay, I really need this prop which was never intended to be attached to the wall. I need to attach it to a wall. And you can do that with gaffer tape because you're no longer worried about, like, oh, but I might damage it. Like, so what if you damage it? it may, it's made out of cardboard. <laughs> You know, and I, maybe this is just me compensating for the fact that, you know, I know if it looked expensive, I'd get precious about it. But the big, the big benefit, I think, the, the one that's, I guess, meaningful for this conversation is that the audience can see these props and go, I could make that myself or my kid could make that. And this is really like... When I get booked to do the show, it's often I'm often getting booked to do it at um, games events aimed at children, you know, with a kind of get into tech kind of vibe about them. And for them, like the people who book me to do the show, maybe seen the show before, they see my work and they go, that would be really inspiring to the kids because the kids can see that they could make the same things at home. And I think there is something kind of magical about being in an experience where recreating it yourself at home is entirely within reach. Because it adds this extra dream to the experience that is that much more tangible. This is not, this isn't just you went to a show and it made you laugh. This is a show, a show that you went to and came away with maybe an intent to do something similar yourself. And you came away going, yeah, I could make video games. Like, that guy made video games out of gaffer tape and cardboard, and he's on stage acting like a professional. Like, if he can do it, I can. And it's the same about, like, the games being simple enough that you can figure them out just by watching them, and, you know, and about me not trying to look clever. You know, because if you can see those simple puzzles and you go, oh, oh, it'd be really good if you could make the same game but make the puzzles more complex and make them really thinky, that's something you could go and try and recreate at home, you know? If you want to get into games, then copying one of my games and then adding to it is perfectly within reach. And that's really, really nice. Now, Eisenberg goes on to talk more about this grok routine with the piano. And he says, 
So, in fact, in Grok's routine, and I don't know if you've seen it, he gets up, rolls up his sleeves and goes right to the back of the piano, and then his partner looks at him and goes, Hey! Points to the stool and moves it in. And Grok goes, Oh my god, how did you think of that? And again, this goes back to the role of the host in the show. You know, the, 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 the straight man clown is the kind of audience stand-in at that point. The, that, uh, the clown who pushes in the stool, stool for Grok and Grok acts amazed at, that is a character that the audience can identify with. What Grok's doing there in acknowledging how smart the partner is is the same thing that I'm doing when I'm on stage and someone suggests something like, you know, bashing me on the head with a banana or sticking the banana, you know, down their shirt. Um, And even if I've seen it before, acting like it's the most amazing thing in the world because that's something tangible. That's something that that it's not just that person who's done that gets to feel the joy of you know, being the funniest person in the room, there's also something in the simplicity of all these things that are going on and the simplicity of the things that I'm amazed at that inspires the rest of the audience that goes, oh, oh, I could pitch in and get some praise as well because it's actually really easy to do. The other clown that came up when I was, like going through the bits of these that had to do with humility and which really sang to me was a clown called, I think it's David Larible. Um, he's Italian um, and he was born in 1959. And he talks about how he got into circus in the first place. Um, and he tells this story about when he was a kid and he went to see the family circus that his mum was a part of. I was probably four or five years old, and I remember they used to do a gag about soldiers. One time, I was in the first row of the public, and one of the clowns takes me and puts me on his shoulders, marching around, and he puts his helmet on my head. And I was so proud of myself, you know, because I was feeling like I was part of the act. And this is something like, you know, I'm talking about a show where I invite people up onto the stage. I'm talking about making people feel like they've made a contribution to the show. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's amazing. That's hilarious. And the rest of the audience feeling like, oh, I can pitch in as well. You know, this is is tapping into the same thing because he was invited to take part in the show and he got to feel like he was an active part of the performance. And that was a special and meaningful thing to him. And I want to invite the audience into the experience. I want them to feel like they are making a meaningful contribution to the creativity, you know, and they are making a meaningful contribution to the spectacle, you know, and they genuinely are. And I want them to feel like whether it was through shouting out a funny suggestion from the back of the room, whether it was coming to the front of the stage and being a player in one of the games, whether it was helping out the players, maybe it was being an obstacle to the players, that everybody in the audience should come away going, this would have been different if I wasn't there. I made a meaningful contribution. 
Now, the way I see it, I'm not on stage to be funny. I, I call The Incredible Playable Show a comedy show. But I don't call myself a comedian. You know, my role on stage is to allow the audience to be funny. It's to give them the space, the permission, the, the safety, the encouragement, the context to make their friends laugh or to make complete strangers laugh. My job is simply to facilitate it. It's to make it simple. It's to make it easy for you to feel and safe for you to feel like you can get on stage and you can make your friends laugh and you can do something silly and you can let loose. And, you know, this is a space where it's okay to put yourself on the spot and and in doing so, you are a contributing factor in something unique and special you know, something that you've never seen before, but also something that the rest of the people in the room have never seen before. Something that will happen once, and then the next time it happens, it will not be the same again. You know, sometimes it's helpful for me to be funny, you know, and I I, <laughs> I try my best to be a good comedian, but I, you know, I, I, like, personally, I don't think I'm naturally funny. I would love to be naturally funny, but I don't think I'm naturally funny. But sometimes the audience is funny enough on their own that they don't need me. And then my job at that point is to just blend into the background. Let what's going on in the room, just let it happen. And I can focus my attention, maybe I'm focusing it on operating the tech and making sure that the tech stays stable throughout the experience so it doesn't interrupt anything. Or, and this is more usually what happens, um, I'm tending to the people who look like they feel left out. You know, there'll be people in the room who, you know, you can tell it in their body language that they're, that they're not so sure about um, jumping in and contributing and, or you know, they, they want to let the other people do it, which is fine. And this is a point where I can come in and I can have an interaction with them, you know, and I can, and I can, you know, have some interaction, some personal interaction with them that is entirely unique to them. And then they go away going, oh, I had a really special experience because the host like singled me out as an individual and, and I experienced something that no one else did. And so they get that specialness of being involved in something unique and personal without coming onto the stage and, you know, putting themselves on show. back at all of these things like because obviously I focused a lot on the interactive show and I want to bring this back a bit to the other games and other creative work that I do so the book ritual the game about the shredder that eats books in the early versions of that show there wasn't really much room for player input you know it was very it was very much me telling my story, and it was the story that I wanted to tell because I made that game because there were things I needed to get off my chest. There were things that I was having trouble talking about in real life that that I kind of, I just, video games were the vocabulary that I'd built up that that I could use to express these ideas. 
and you know these thoughts and concerns and worries but i realized in the process of making it that i couldn't really say what i needed to say without giving the player a space to say what they needed to say the player needed to feel like the game was listening to them and that i cared about their feelings as you know the invisible creator on the other side of the game you know they needed to feel like i cared about their stories and and what they had to say was important you know and they had to feel like that they were acknowledged and that they were valued before they could feel comfortable extending that same uh that same openness to me a total stranger you know that i am not present when people are playing the book ritual they're playing it at home or they're playing it at an exhibition at which point you know I, I will not get close to people, I will not get in people's space because it's a personal thing. I'm inviting people to share their emotional experiences and, you know, I want them to be able to feel that they can share something sensitive and having, you know, having some randomer hovering over them is not going to help them do that. These players, they needed to feel that opening up in the first place is safe. So before the book ritual could be about me, before it could tell the stories that I needed to tell, to ask the questions that I needed to get off my chest, it needed to be about you. It needed to be about the player on the other side. And that's why it asks you questions. That's why it asks you to do all of these creativity tasks and to tear up this book in different ways and give it a face and write your personal stories in it and share, you know, your little sadnesses and your little, the things that you've lost and tell it about all the things that you've lost. And because if I'm not willing to extend that listening ear to you, I wouldn't feel happy about asking you to extend that listening ear to me. So a couple of years ago, I did this 27-hour-long piece of video art, and it was called uh, Journey to Lavender Town, and it was made using a hacked version of Pokemon on the Game Boy. So what this video piece was, was it was a playthrough of the game, uh, where every time you had a battle with another Pokemon, it would, it would like, decay the data on the cartridge in some way. And it it kind of was about, I guess I was trying to tap into feelings about, you know, environmental decay and about um, how, you know, there is nothing that we can do as human beings that doesn't have an impact on the environment and, you know, how that makes me feel. And a kind of sense of, a sense of mourning for, you know, the world in entropy about, uh, about about the heat death of the universe, about the decay of all things. Um, hence why the video ends when the player reaches Lavender Town, which is the location of the Pokemon graveyard. Now, I was lucky enough to be able to show this piece of video art in a gallery. Um, and I remember having it set up, and I'd set it up with these flowers around it, like it was, you know... So the flowers would... Um, would uh, die and go brown and crispy <laughs> over the over the course of the the exhibition so there was a kind of installation 
aspect to it as well. And then watching people come to the exhibition and they just walked past it. They they would give it a cursory glance and then continue walking. I don't remember seeing anyone sort of stick with it and sit with it for a while. And I realised, like, just watching it happen, it made it so obvious why that was. Because there was no invitation into this video. There was no invitation into this experience. You know, if you are watching this video, in large chunks of it, it just looks like a static screen. And if it doesn't look like a static screen, it looks like a normal copy of Pokemon because you're right at the beginning and there's not been much decay yet. So if you walk past, you just see a bunch of random stuff on the screen, but you can't put it into context. You can't say, oh, that's this thing or that's that thing. You can't say, you know, if you stood with it for a minute, you would not be able to turn to someone else and tell them what happened in that minute. You would not... And because you can't do that, it's really hard to kind of take that minute away with you and keep that minute in a little box and say, that was my minute. Now, by contrast, I did a piece, uh, it was a Twitch stream about a year ago where I tried to come up with a, a thousand game ideas over the course of eight hours. I managed 500, which I'm pretty proud of, Um and I really liked that piece. I really liked doing it. It was a lot of fun. Um, but what it was kind of an attempt to do was to kind of... To try and create what was missing in Journey to Lavender Town. You know, try and create that invitation in. Because if you tuned into the stream at any moment, you could see, okay, there's a guy speaking he's got a word in front of him he's got like a score counter um and he's talking he seems to be talking about the word on the screen you can piece together oh okay i figure it out he's trying to come up with a game idea based around a theme on the screen and you could sit with it for a minute and afterwards tell a friend about the, the game idea that i had talked about during that one minute and if it's early on, you'd go, oh, God, the guy was talking so fast. And it was like, it was about rats. And he came up with this idea about rats in go-karts. And you could describe that idea. And if you're watching it later on, you're like, yeah, it was really weird. Because he, he just sat and stared at the word democracy, looking confused and going, I don't know what to do with this. I'm so tired. And, you know, and you've got a little mini story in that one minute that you watched. You might stick around a bit longer to see where it goes, but no one can watch the entire thing. But whichever bit you do watch, the chances are no one watched the same bit as you. So that bit that you watched belongs to you. And that's what I wanted Journey to Lavender Town to be. You know, the 27 hour long uh, Pokemon video. But there was nothing in there that anyone could attach themselves to and say, that thing, which I can describe, is my thing. And that's what was missing. It was th that ability to be able to pick out a thing was an invitation. An invitation to participate. Even though you weren't, like, literally participating. You know, you were not interacting with me. But you could play along. You could play along with the experiment in your head. You could ask yourself, what would I do in the same situation? 
Um, an example from outside my own work um, is a video piece. Uh, so this is a 24 hour long video piece, um, which I caught an hour of at an exhibition. I can't remember where it was. It's all done using footage of clocks from famous movies. And the clocks that are filmed, the, 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 they're kind of edited out of the film, so you just get, like, a short scene where a clock is visible. And the clock, in shot, corresponds to the time that it is in the real world. So if you go in at 3.14, you will see a clock on screen that reads 3.14. And that's really nice, because you go in, you can go in with no idea what that is. And you, you know, you see clocks and then you see different clocks and you go, okay, this is about clocks. Wait, is that, is that James Dean? Is that, uh, is that Keanu Reeves? And you go, wait, these are actors. These are bits from films. And then you go, these are, are these, are these just bits of films? Wait a minute, the clocks are, that's the same time as it is right now. And there you go. And you've kind of, you have gone on that little journey of figuring out what that uh, what this video is about, and you figure that out for yourself just by being there. And you've had this little journey just by being there, and now you can sit and watch it, and you know that you saw the bit which had it had Jaws, and it had Back to the Future, and it had uh, Trading Places, and um, Thirteen Going on Thirty. You know these were all in it. And that was the little section that you watched, and that little section belongs to you. You know, it's the same thing. But what this is, is by being kind of readable, it's an invitation to participate. You know, you get it, and then the participation in that is like, how how long can you go watching this? How long can you go? Like, I know there are... I know people who have watched the entire thing from start to finish in a marathon sitting. And, like, you know, that is... They have chosen to play along with this piece of art. And these are non-interactive pieces of work which have an element of participation in them. And they have that element of participation because they were created with an understanding of what another human being on the other side of the screen would be wanting to get out of it and how they would want to participate. And to me, that is what humility means to me as a concept. You know, humility in creative work is about going, this piece of work is not about me. It's not for me. You know, it's, this is, I'm trying to communicate something. So in order to communicate that, I need to understand how the people looking at it or playing it or listening to it are going to experience it and try and understand it from their, from their lens. You know, I personally find it very easy to get wrapped up in my own head, you know, and I, and I go, oh God, this symbolism, there's, you know, there's in the, um, in the book ritual, there's this whole segment in there that sort of, that was at one point all about Power Rangers. And to me, that made perfect sense. But I had to, I, I changed it because like to, to everyone else, they looked at it and they went, well, what the hell, Power Rangers? This game about a copy of Jane Eyre that I'm holding in my hand 
that is upset about something and and it wants me to listen to it, but it also wants to listen to me. This magical little book I'm holding exists in a world where it used to watch Power Rangers as a child. Like that, what? It, it, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't connect. But to me, it connected perfectly. Like, I could understand, you know, but it was connecting perfectly because it was talking about a symbolism that only meant something to me. You know, and I find it very easy to get wrapped up in these kind of little elements of symbolism or illusions that are that don't communicate anything to anyone other than me. And I think it's it's important. It's important not to forget that you, your audience needs to feel free and excited to share this exploration with you. And that's, I guess, why reading this book was so special, because I saw all of these figures. These are... These clowns are at the top of the, their craft, and they are telling very similar stories about finding that humility, finding that, you know, understanding of your audience as, as fellow human beings, and, and that felt really reassuring. When I talk about humility, I'm not talking about making yourself small. I'm not talking about putting yourself down. I'm talking about the value that other people have in your creative process. To me, being loud and taking center stage is an act of humility because I'm considering my audience. I'm putting their needs at the center of the experience. And for a lot of those people in the audience, they need to feel that they're not putting themselves on the spot. Humility is not about going, I will not allow myself to be centre stage. It's about going, I will allow myself to be centre stage because it benefits the, the experience of other people. And when it does not benefit the experience of other people, I don't need to do it. I want to make my games or my stage shows or all these things feel like a safe experience to participate in. You know, I have the skills and the experience to make video games and I have the confidence to get up on stage. And when I am performing a show, not everybody in the room will have that those skills and experience. Not everybody in the room will have that confidence about being on stage in front of an audience. And so part of what I want the show to be is an opportunity for those people to say, yeah, I can have a meaningful role in creating a game experience, or I can get up on stage in front of a bunch of people and have fun. It's about sharing the joy that I get from what I do and making it so that other people can experience that joy that, that, I, that I love so much. And through doing all of that, I'm seeing my audience enjoy the show more than they would have otherwise. And I'm seeing them going home with a warm spirit and a sense of camaraderie with the other people they've spent this experience with, whether they're friends or total strangers. 
And I get the joy of having brought that to life and meeting the creative goals that I had. So humility, as I see it, is not about selflessness. It's not about a rejection of the self. It's about understanding that other people have selves too, and that by giving something to those selves, you can give something back to yourself that's even greater than what you would have on your own. So in the next uh, of these episodes, I'm going to be returning to the clown's book, and I'm going to be talking about failure. Uh, this is a concept that comes up very often in this book about clowning. Um, it's something that uh, the flop is uh, something that came up a lot in the um, in the workshops that I went to, um, where I was taught by Holly Stoppett. And to me, failure is a really important creative tool. And from reading the book, I think it's a very important creative tool. Failure, just there. It's a very important creative tool from the perspective of the clowns who are speaking in the book. So thank you very much for taking part. <laughs> for taking part, yeah, for taking part as listeners. You took part in this experience, you know? You stuck with me till the end, and I appreciate that. And you probably thought along and had your own thoughts and ideas about what I was saying. And so there we go, that's participatory. And I thank you very much for the participation that uh, that you have given me. I look forward to doing the next one. I hope you come along for that. Um, have yourself a lovely day, lovely morning, lovely evening, whatever time of day you're listening to this in. Uh, just have yourselves a lovely everything. My name is Alistair Aitchison. I'm the creator of the Incredible Playable Show, as well as various other games. And I shall see you again very soon. Thank you very much. The Incredible Playable Podcast now ends with the conclusion of our game. Where we left off, you had your dinner party. One of your historical figure guests was enjoying the food. One of your historical figure guests hated the food. And one of them choked on the food. Oh no, what are you doing? What are they doing? Do you do, you do the Heimlich maneuver on them? Do they do, do they do, do they live? Do they do they die? Um, do you call an ambulance? Oh oh, wait a minute! It's quarantine. It's quarantine. You shouldn't have been having these people over in the first place. And that's that's sirens coming. It's the police. This is the police. What do you do? What do you do with these historical figures in your house? Do you hide them? Do you hide the like is the body? Is it still alive? I don't know. Do you resuscitate it? Do you take it to the hospital? You've got to figure out this crisis. Um, ladies and gentlemen, non-binary friends, I'm going to leave you on this panicky moment to figure out what on earth you are going to do with this weird situation. Thank you very much. Have yourselves a lovely evening and good night.